Good day, everyone. Welcome back to my online show, Give Peace a Chance. I am Nashina Mohammed. Thank you for joining me. My guest today is uh, Dr. Nir Boms, who is a research fellow at the Moshe Dayan Center at the University of Tel Aviv. He is based in Jerusalem. Welcome. Great to have you on the show, Dr. Nir. Very good to be here. And good to see you again. Another historic day for Israel and for Bahrain, signatories of the Abraham Accords. Uh, I believe delegates arrived from Bahrain this morning. Uh, to engage in tripartite discussions with um, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. So exciting times for the Middle East, depends which side of the fence you're sitting on. Uh, but what are the expectations from these engagements? What is likely to emerge? Well, the, the visit uh, of uh, the Foreign Minister of Bahrain, Abdel Latif Al-Ziani, uh, and with uh, an entourage of uh, 25 other uh, colleagues, uh, including Avi Berkowitz, uh, who is the uh, U.S. President's uh, envoy, uh, is important. It's uh, another visit uh, following another of other uh, visits that have taken place here in the last few uh, weeks, and I would say other visits that... Uh, uh, had uh, taken place also in the UAE and in Bahrain by a number of uh, delegations dealing with economic operations, tourism, um, other issues involving the, the visa agreements. There were a number of uh, agreements um, and arrangements that uh, are supposed to uh, uh, structure the normalization, the new normalization relations. Uh, it seems that even the discussion regarding uh, the embassy of Bahrain in Israel is a part of this uh, particular round of uh, talks. And the broader uh, ramifications of all of this is that uh, we are uh, building um, a process of normalization, a process of peace, uh, in a very different way, by the way, from uh, what we have done previously, uh, let's say with Jordan, uh, with the uh, Egyptians or with the Palestinians, you see a very different level of uh, engagement a very different level of will. And as somebody who deals with these issues and who speaks with people from the Gulf really on a daily basis, I can attest personally that this is something very significant and very different. Would you say it's about a bit more tangible than the Jordan and Egyptian peace agreements between Israel and those two countries? Tangible in terms of here you are seeing economic cooperation surface very quickly in terms of these bilateral uh, agreements being put in place, and we are seeing things happening, change taking place on the ground. In, in, uh, yeah. in the instance of the UAE, it's almost immediate. There are flights uh, that are taking place between the two countries. Yes, there are a number of parameters that uh, you know follow uh, what, what you said, but let me start with an example from another era. In 1979, uh, the agreement with Egypt uh, included the building, the opening of uh, two uh, cultural and academic centers, an academic center in Cairo uh, that Israel would uh, set up, and it was indeed set up, and the academic center, the Egyptian one in Tel Aviv. The academic center in Cairo was indeed open and set up, uh, but until today, uh, really, Egyptians are not allowed to enter. Uh, uh, the uh, activity is very, very limited, and it's uh, the Israeli embassy has been uh, under heavy guard, and in some cases where it was even under attack. The uh, academic center or cultural center in Tel Aviv, uh, the Egyptian one, is yet to be opened. And although we have a very good relationship with the embassy and I speak with the diplomats open, there's hardly engagement with the public, with the people. And I think you would take that and have a contrast with what we're seeing now when it comes to um, 
the UAE and with Bahrain. Civic society is working. We already speak uh, about uh, exchange uh, of uh, university programs, academic programs. You have uh, visitors and, and delegates who are engaged in, in public discourse and civic society work. I'm involved in creating a, a, a group of young leaders from both sides, uh, mentoring them, working with them uh, together. I have uh, seen many events, public events. We are conferring on Zoom. We are building things together, creating music together, uh, uh, creating uh, content together, creating business together. Um, it's a very different uh, uh, feel. In Dubai today, there's probably more kosher kitchens than in probably most other uh, cities in the world after, let's say, you know, Jerusalem or New York. This is another indication, um, by the way, not of a business model, uh, but really of a, a genuine hospitality and a genuine care to make this right. That's very inspiring. So you think people are very serious about peace uh, because my opinion, my personal opinion is that economic cooperation is fundamental to peace building. It's about serving humanity. It's about finding synergy and, when, and exchanging cultural ideas. Uh, that's my own personal opinion. So it seems that uh, peace building is very much alive in the Middle East following the Abraham Accords. Well, you know, we can speak a lot about the Abraham Accord and, and their uh, meaning and significance. Uh, and uh, they did not come out of the blue. This has been a process, an important process of development and evolution. Uh, would say, you know, you mentioned about the economic peace. There are over 500 Israeli companies operated in the Gulf before the Abraham Accord even started. And when we're looking about these engagements, uh, we've had over 15 years or even more of engagements and the beginning of building up of these relations. The relationship with civic society and people from the region have been also an ongoing process uh, and that has been very much at work. Uh, so uh, this is not the, something that came out of, uh, uh, out of the blue uh, and it came because of a growing realization uh, that the region is pivoting. And if you want, I'm happy to speak more about it, but this has to do with broader developments with the Arab Spring, uh, with the rise of radical voices in the region, uh, with Iran, and we have an understanding that the region needs to act differently and therefore normalization becomes a part of the broader reconfiguration of the Middle East. Having said that, a lot of people have actually given credits to the outgoing US President Donald Trump when it came to actually formalizing uh, normalization between Israel, the UAE and Bahrain and including Sudan to some degree. Um, but you said it was a build up. This has been going on for quite some time. Uh, would it be fair to give him that credit? Yes, I think credit, the credit is due. Uh, you, there is a very uh, active team that has been uh, on the ground. Um, uh, the, 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 the emissaries of uh, you know, the State Department and the President uh, have been uh, working uh, very diligently on these issues, uh, shuttling uh, between the different countries and trying to bring agreements and an additional incentive uh, that are coming from the U.S., which basically helps uh, uh, connect to the other uh, pieces of the relevant security deals that have also been a part of this uh, agreement. But I, I would like to, to stress that this has been perhaps the, uh, the process of sealing the deal. Uh, they could not have done this based just on incentives or just based on uh, an attempt to create uh, some realities before the American elections. 
It was done because uh, there was a growing realization that there needs to be a change and a pivot here. And if I can say something more about this, I would say the following. Up to about 10 years ago, uh, it was very convenient to look at the Middle East through the prism of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, sure. through the prism of what was then called the Middle Eastern conflict. And, and again, uh, quoting uh, former Secretary of State uh, John Kerry, who said, this is the key. We need to move the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and then we can move something else. And gradually, this began to change. The Arab Spring uh, turned into uh, a difficult winter uh, with wars and failed states and radical Islamist factors have showed uh, the many people in the region and, and outside the region that with all the respect to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, uh, it, uh, it's very difficult to see that Israel or that particular conflict is really triggering what is happening in Libya and what is happening in Syria or what is happening in Iraq. It's very difficult to uh, attribute this particular conflict to Iran's aggression in the entire region. Uh, or to the feuds between Qatar and Saudi Arabia, or to the phenomena of uh, the Islamic State's radicalism that began to be a, 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 seen as the major threat for many of the moderate states, certainly in the Gulf. To remind you, in 2014, uh, the uh, Islamic, uh, the, sorry, the Muslim Brothers were pronounced as terrorist organizations uh, by Egypt, by uh, Saudi uh, Arabia, by uh, the Gulf uh, uh, countries. It, basically means that for now they're looking at this is now the major threat. And when we're looking at the Muslim Brothers as a major threat, of political Islam as the major threat, we're beginning to realign some of the way we think. Because if uh, the Muslim Brotherhood uh, is now a terrorist organization and the Islamists now are very comfortable with having the Israeli-Palestinian conflict as the main uh, mobilizing factor uh, and now we are less comfortable with this because if that's what they're doing, we're something doing something uh, which is the reverse. Yeah. It was also an interesting un uh, realization that, that there are other fundamental terms that are changing here. Uh, Arab unity, um, Arab solidarity. All of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, we have some internal disputes here. Very interesting uh, uh, discourses that uh, I'm, I'm following on this issue. What is Arabism today? Pan-Arabism, you know, the Nasser pan-Arabism is no longer alive for quite some time. The Palestinian conflict perhaps was the last remaining uh, glue that enabled to give uh, at least an appearance that there is something there. But all of a sudden, wait a minute, if they are supporting Hamas uh, and we are saying that Hamas is a terrorist organization, we no longer can... Uh, say that we are having uh, all of our ducks aligned around this issue. And therefore, there is some change here. And I'm part of the understanding that perhaps the idea of normalization can change some of that and can also change the future of the Israeli-Palestinian conflicts and bring additional voices to the main stage, uh, more moderate perspectives. Uh, and that perhaps that will that, be the key for the future. So that is the hope you're talking about. That's the possibility of the hope and the nature of what everybody is is calling this as a game changer for the region. Well, it is a game changer for the region because uh, we have been speaking quite some time about Israel as a, an island, an isolated island in the Middle East, surrounded by Arab and Muslim countries and basically uh, having alliances only with, uh, let's say, no, the non-Arab partners, traditionally Iran and Turkey. Of course, the last few decades, 
uh, have seen that the Iran became the, the arch enemy, Turkey uh, growingly uh, so. And on the other hand, the uh, Arab states became the allies. Uh, and this uh, not just uh, because of the peace agreements with Egypt and Jordan, but also now with the growing relationships in the Gulf. And this is the, the formalization uh, of uh, UAE and Bahrain, and now recently Sudan and Africa, um, but also the additional relationship that we've seen because we are seeing these indications from Saudi Arabia. Um, and part of that, again, is not just about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or just the normalization of Israel. It's about an understanding that we need to have a different rhythm and a different and, and different uh, mode in the Middle East at large. And part of the normalization revolution has to do with bringing that mode into the fora. There was a bit of disruption, though, uh, following the um, signing of the Abraham Accords. The reaction from the PA was, um, was not very encouraging. Uh, they basically condemned the Abraham Accords. We saw some violent protests take place uh, in Palestine, correct me if I'm wrong, but how tense was it? We also noticed that there were protests being held at the Al-Aqsa Mosque when UAE delegates visited Israel. How tense actually was that there on the ground? Uh, and we had, by the way, as a matter of interest, we had uh, the BDS protesting here in South Africa outside the embassy of the UAE as well. And as you know, South Africa also basically uh, condemned this because it stands in solidarity with Palestine. Do you think the Palestinians overreacted? Uh, did, or did they miss an opportunity here? Um, wh wh what do you make of their reaction? Look, their reaction was in a way uh, expected. Uh, and uh, I want to say two things. First of all, I'm saddened by all of this. I have, uh, I'm engaged in the Palestinian arena. I have many conversations with Palestinian friends. Not all of them, I would say, would sign on to the uh, PA line. Uh, which is a continuation of a line of rejection. I had an opportunity at last week to engage with a Palestinian official and I asked, following a discussion on this, what is your response uh, to this issue of normalization? Of course, I know you condemn it, that I've heard before, but what is your vision? Uh, when you want the UAE uh, tourists to come here, do you want to tell them not to come to Ramallah? When you, want to, when you have UAE and Bahraini investors here, do you want to tell them it's important to, that you're coming here, just don't invest in, 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 in Ramallah or in anywhere, just go to Israel and skip us? Do you want to tell them that you're going to spit on you in the Temple Mount because it's not a Muslim site, it's, uh, it's ours? Do you think it's going to work? And I've asked her, do you think that this is going to bring uh, uh, the Palestinian interest uh, forward. <coughs> I mean, I've, I've said that because I genuinely think that is, it is the wrong approach. There is a, a real chance here to uh, uh, move the Palestinian economy forward to create additional partnerships if there's going to be a way to, to move into this normalization train. I think part of the, uh, uh, the Palestinian approach of saying no and, and, and not able to engage and saying no with the BDS movement in some ways, it's a pirate's victory. I mean, the BDS movement is saying you want to isolate Israel, you want to uh, uh, show that uh, that uh, you know push Israel uh, to the brink so it will lose. But in many ways, what happened is the reverse. Uh, the, the Palestinians are the ones who are isolated, partially because of these voices coming from the BDS, because they appear too extreme. And all of a sudden now, uh, the BDS in a way have won. They have made the argument that, that the Palestinians should not collaborate with Israel, and therefore the Palestinians should not collaborate with Israel. The Prime Minister of Israel, the one that they don't particularly like, because I would even agree to say that I'm not sure that he is the best, best champion of peace, 
but he is saying we don't have a partner. The BDS movement says, we don't tell us you don't have a partner. We will prove to you that you're never going to have a partner. And he says, okay, so if, you're not, if, we're not, if we have an agreement on the fact that we're not partners, and then we can partner with others, then we're just going to continue all this work. And if you want this to continue without you, you can have it done without you. What will be the result for the Palestinians? And certainly not positive results in terms of economy, not positive results in terms of politics, and additional radicalization when the PA really fails. And when the additional ra radicalization comes and Hamas types of voices will continue to uh, uh, you know, get strengthened, of course, they're not going to get much sympathy from uh, uh, the Arab allies. You, in Saudi Arabia, you have very interesting discussions today about the location of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And you have official Saudi media uh, contesting the idea that Al-Aqsa Mosque, Al-Aqsa Mosque is absolutely holy. It's the third holiest place for Islam. They're just saying it doesn't belong, it does not exist in Jerusalem. They located in Saudi Arabia. And they're saying, you know what, it's maybe we need to uh, put this also in perspective. And this is fascinating because we have never heard these voices in such a visible way before. So I think the Palestinians would be uh, wiser if they were to... Uh, uh, think about other ways and, and, and rethink the issue of uh, uh, normalization or anti-normalization as a, a policy, because I do not believe that this is the best way to, to advance the Palestinian cause. Well, it certainly did have an impact on the Palestinian cause to some degree near, because they're heading off to the polls, I believe, in 2021, June 2021. And maybe they got a sense that they would be they, of isolation, as you pointed out just now. And... Uh, pushing forward democracy is always a step in the right direction. Um, are, Israelis, are, Israelis Absolutely. They, they, are Israelis and Palestinians hopeful about the forthcoming elections? Look, the Palestinians were heading to the polls a number of times, at least in theory, since 2006. Uh, I would like to see uh, the process, the democratic process of elections, uh, in, in 2021, and yet to be seen whether it's not going to be postponed uh, again. Uh, remember that uh, the Palestinians are split, um, not just between uh, Gaza and the West Bank, uh, also internally, uh, not to mention the, the complexities of East Jerusalem. And, uh, and that was one of the reasons why it was very difficult for them to have a, a really political process. Um, it's uh, uh, while as long as the Palestinians are split, in some ways it, it serves the radicals on both sides. Um, the Palestinians uh, can always blame Hamas uh, and, and that Hamas is not agreeing and then they cannot move and then there cannot be elections. So Abu Mazen can remain the leader until the day he passes away. Obviously, he is not young and he is not healthy. Um, uh, Israel is uh, always has the uh, the reason or to say that you know as long as Hamas is there, we're not able to have business with organization that bows uh, to uh, continue the uh, struggle and, and and that continues to manufacture missiles rather than you know improve the economy of its people. And therefore, we're stuck. And what we're seeing, uh, that's part of the result when there's an understanding that because with all the respect, we cannot let these, the very small Israeli-Palestinian conflict influence the entire Middle East. There are larger problems here. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the issue of Iran. There's the issue of radicalization. Um, we need to have a vision uh, in, in, in coming to the future of a, a region that is very young with 70% under the age of 30. And part of this is, is the understanding that if we're not offering a vision uh, for uh, 
uh, a future of uh, economic prosperity, for a future uh, of uh, uh, that gives horizon to the development of people, people may go to the other side, which is the radical side, and that's exactly what we're uh, many of the parties in the Gulf are trying to fight. This is why they created the Ministry of Tolerance. This is why they're also creating a Ministry of Happiness, because they understand that the young people are a key. This is why women in Saudi Arabia drive today. This is the understanding that we need to move either to a, a, a path of development that will lead to prosperity and collaboration and acceptance of the other and a degree of peace or normalization, whatever word you wish to call, or to a path of radicalization. And we have seen the path of radicalization. We are still seeing it now uh, in Libya, in Syria, in Iraq, we've seen the sheer destruction, uh, the most devastating decade in the history of the region uh, for, uh, for really many uh, uh, decades or even centuries in terms of the number, you know, in Syria, every second person lost his or her home. You're talking about uh, um, millions of refugees uh, and, and, and even millions of casualties. And that's an understanding. It's a wake-up call. We don't want to do have more of that. We need to create a different vision, and normalization is part of that. Mm -hmm. The expectation was that if Trump would have won this election, that Saudi Arabia would be next to the next signatory of the Abraham Accords, and the expectation was that many other countries will come on board. Now that uh, we have a new incoming administration, the Biden U.S. administration. Are the expectations still the same when it comes to um, improving the momentum of getting more Arab countries onto as signatories of the Abraham Accords? Can we expect that in 2021 or not under the Biden administration? Look, the, the uh, Biden administration is certainly an important factor and, and, and it's an important factor in the context of the American uh, vision policy and, and directives in the region. I would say that the Trump administration deserves some credit for uh, uh, pushing these agendas forward. Uh, we're not yet sure uh, what the Biden administrations will do. But I think broadly speaking, these developments are very much uh, aligned with U.S. interests and they're very much aligned with regional interests. What uh, the Trump administration did is help push some of this forward. And I think this is moving forward, whether it would move forward with additional ceremonies, um, or whether it will wait a bit, uh, that's, I think, a secondary question. Uh, Saudi Arabia already uh, enabled planes to fly, and, and there are engagements in a number of other levels. Uh, and, of course, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, uh, is the big brother uh, in the region, and these dynamics would not have happened, I think, uh, unless the Saudis would have been a bit more aligned. Uh, the Saudis have uh, taken a very significant uh, turn when it comes to the Palestinian issue. I'm referring now to the a number of recent statements, including that of Prince Bandar, who, who gave a, a very uh, you know, passionate uh, video expose of, of, of uh, criticizing really the Palestinian leadership and demanding them to change course. Um, I, so I think some of these developments will happen. They will happen uh, fast with American involvement. They would happen perhaps slower with a different uh, administration. But I do not believe that the Biden administration is a necessarily obstacle for this. We have to wait and to see what their order of priorities would be. Um, 
but I don't think that the Biden administrations will uh, may prioritize some of these issues in a different way, but I don't think that the Biden administrations will be an obstacle for this. On the contrary, I think that an agenda that brings uh, more prominency to moderate players, normalization, um, tackling the radical dimension, the radical uh, uh, players in the region, um, including Iran, including Turkey, uh, including the radical groups that are sponsored uh, by uh, Islamist movement, uh, by Qatar. These are the problems that uh, America sees in the, in the region. Uh, these are the problems uh, that uh, really bring uh, lack of stability, and these are the issues we need to tackle. What about when it comes to giving aid to the Palestinians? Do you think that there is a possibility? I know you said that it's too early to tell. We're just going to have to wait and see. There's so much of analysis out there. Um, there are some analysts who predicted that Biden might be a little bit more soft or sympathetic towards the Palestinian cause, uh, more so than Trump was, and perhaps might engage with them um, in a different way. Uh, open up engagement. Uh, the issue of aid, because under the Trump administration, we know that the U.S. cut its aid to Palestine. What are your thoughts on that? Look, the issue of aid is, is obviously significant because the Palestinians uh, are uh, very much dependent of aid uh, in Gaza and in the PA. This aid, however, has came under a lot of scrutiny because a lot of these funds ended up not creating prosperity or development, but really created you know, more dependency. Some of this money ended up paying compensations and to, to terrorist families. Some of other money came to create uh, support NGOs that had been very radical in nature. Um, very little of it had uh, shown results, uh, and therefore many of the donors, not just in the U.S., but also in Europe, have began to defund. I mean, the, uh, the, the Arab country. Sure. Sorry, Neil. What was the primary? I mean, you, you're saying that the money was used in a specific way. So what was the primary agreement or understanding in terms of where the money would go to? to assist Palestinians. What was the understanding there? Well, the process of uh, foreign aid is a complicated process. You have uh, sometimes a country that says, you know, we want to give some money to another country and we trust the organ or we create our own uh, uh, mechanism to monitor the money. I think it took some time to uh, realize that there were not enough mechanisms, that uh, some of the money came into uh, the wrong hands. Uh, and there were plenty, and there are still plenty of uh, discourses on this issue. Um, there are more people who, who, who follow this more closely than I, um, but uh, you have a number of examples and where uh, eventually uh, the Americans as well, but also beforehand the Europeans and, and you know, the Saudis and others basically said, look, we are not happy with the way our money was uh, distributed. Um, because we have not seen a significant progress, but what we've seen is that it's some people closer to uh, the circle became richer, some of it was pocketed, uh, other parts of it came into causes that uh, are, are just not very close to the agenda of peace. The, uh, the quartet, uh, the, 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 the broader framework of the donor countries uh, and the Americans and the Europeans uh, who have been working, you know, together at least tacitly on some of the issues. This, these foreign aid was supposed to uh, 
encourage peace, not to uh, uh, encourage, uh, let's say, you know, BDS and efforts that are aimed against normalization. If you're trying to get people and partners to engage and you're basically encouraging anti-normalization efforts, how would you uh, move forward? Sure. So we, we've seen on the news Donald Trump really um, lash out at uh, the Palestinian Authority um, for the misuse of those funds. However, what I did not see or did not observe, so maybe you can enlighten us, did we see or witness a sense of accountability coming through from the PA in terms of this US aid, which is much needed from what we all understand? Um, have they communicated a sense of accountability to say that we will work with you um, to ensure that we have these funds so that maybe we can work together um, based on the fact that we need this money? Look, uh, the PA uh, have been struggling with this uh, because they wanted to uh, insist that they're doing the right thing. I'll give you an example. Uh, in May of this year, the UAE had landed a plane in Ben Gurion Airport with significant assistance, corona-related uh, medical uh, devices, masks, equipment for corona, very much needed in the PA. Uh, the PA chose not to accept that aid uh, because it landed in Ben Gurion Airport. They could not uh, uh, accept something that lands in Israel. On behalf of the anti-normalization policies, it's important not to accept the aid, even in the price of having uh, more Palestinians dying because of lack of uh, medical uh, instruments uh, or, or medical equipment. That has been the choice of the PA, and unfortunately, the choice was uh, was made in in, in in other instances in trying to either defend their uh, um, uh, distribution of uh, funds. There's been an interesting uh, exchange on all this issue of. Uh, the, the money used to support the families. And then they said, okay, we're not going to do it. You're right. We're just going to give it now to uh, the, the money to the Fatah headquarters and the Fatah will do it. So it's not coming directly from the PA. So you won't say that the PA is doing this, but the money is coming from the PA to the Fatah and then from there. And then they've changed the law again so that they'll be able to continue to uh, use some of these funds to support uh, families of terrorists, which has been one of the uh, contagious issues. You mean martyrs? Um, terrorists think, that were martyrs. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, yes. Okay. And, and therefore, I think that the Palestinians have offered little, by the way, of uh, accountability. I, I do hear some voices inside the PA um, that uh, are basically uh, arguing that they need to be a different course. And they're also asking uh, the PA to act differently because it's, uh, they would like to see some of this aid uh, money coming uh, their way rather than uh, going into uh, a, a closed circle of uh, cronies in a way um, that is uh, furthering the uh, rejection policies and really not enabling economic prosperity. Mm -hmm. That is quite sad. Is there hope um, that the PA will actually hop on board um, to see the benefits of the Abraham Accords and what it could potentially hold for them as well. Are they having the PA, discussions? The, the PA is currently currently holds the view that uh, the Abraham Accords holds very little uh, for them uh, because it's uh, it breaks their uh, wall of resistance. It breaks the uh, uh, wall of uh, the, the BDS movement in a way. I mean, this is normalization. 
uh, I think as long as the PA continues to stick with the anti-normalization policy, um, it's going to be very difficult for them to, um, uh, to, to do something about this. They would need to change, uh, to change their mind and says, look, we need to engage. Uh, if the PA, the, the, the basically their main strategy was that uh, we're not going to engage with Israel and we let international pressure do its own so the Israel's hand would be, you know, uh, uh, moved by pressure of the international community so they will be able to secede uh, more to the Palestinians. I think Israel needs to find a way to engage with the Palestinians. I think Israel needs to uh, deal with these issues very seriously. I think we need to do our part. I uh, consider myself as a, a member of the peace movement. I would like to see an end for this conflict. I think Israel needs to do what it can uh, to uh, uh, offer uh, its own part on, on how to bring the Palestinians back to the table. Israel uh, needs to compromise as well on, on very important issues. And we've discussed these ideas and proposals you know, time and again. Um, but Israel cannot do it alone. And uh, I think the Palestinians have taught Israel uh, in the last uh, decade and a half uh, that they think it's not only that things are more complicated and there's really not much of a partner. Even when the Palestinians who said, look, the occupation is the problem, the occupation is the problem. When Israel left Gaza, the Palestinians have taught Israel that the occupation is the least of the problems. Because if you leave uh, the Palestinians and you we give them uh, the, the way to, to manage their own affairs, what we're getting is something like Hamas. So either we need to be more creative or we need to have a change of uh, minds and hearts. And a big part of it has to do with uh, the uh, perhaps uh, and, and not a new Palestinian leadership and a Palestinian mindset that will enable a vision uh, that's uh, perhaps slightly more similar to what we've heard recently from UAE. Sure. Um, Nir, looking at things from a political perspective, um, certainly the Abraham Accords comes across as that game changer when it comes to your conflict with Palestine. It, it, it seems as if we've had this conversation two years ago on leadership and um, Israel and Palestine, both of you are seeking each other uh, to be suitable partners for peace. There are more than 300 peace movements uh, in Israel. The peace camp is big. There, there are a lot of efforts taking place at a grassroots level to build bridges between Israelis and Palestinians. What are your thoughts about these efforts? And do you think that it has the potential of gaining momentum to open hearts and minds to explore new possibilities of peace? Look, I am familiar with these efforts. I've been a part of these efforts. I created a, a, a group uh, that's called Tiul Rikhle, which is a group that does uh, work with Israelis and Palestinians in the context of uh, going together in both sides of the green line, studying history, uh, studying the past in order to understand the present, in order to change the future. But as a broader observation, this movement has weakened significantly. This movement is weakened significantly uh, you know, for really three main reasons. Um, the first and most important reason is that uh, the BDS, uh, the anti-normalization movement, had basically put a, a halt on much of these activities. I mean, Palestinians have not encouraged it, uh, and they've discouraged it, and in some cases they've even um, attacked uh, and even imprisoned Palestinians who've been involved in some of these efforts. Uh, we've been hearing also, even in Gaza, that you know, people were arrested just for having a Zoom conversation with Israelis. So it's very difficult to uh, engage in, in really coexistence activities when uh, one side almost uh, refusing to meet or to engage. 
um, to, so the public mood, which is the second piece uh, in the Palestinian mind and, and in a way influenced the Israeli mindset. I mean, people have said, look, if that's the case, then how much can we invest? I mean, how can we create a civic society change when the other side seems to be completely trapped within uh, this, this mindset? And the Israelis began to lose traction of it, uh, realizing that all of these efforts and all of these contributions for coexistence efforts uh, had not brought much results. And then the third and uh, the last year, you know, uh, the COVID realities have uh, made meetings in Israel almost impossible, not to mention meetings with, between Israelis and Palestinians. So many of uh, the few things that have remained have also been cancelled. Um, I uh, am not sure how and if civic society will make a difference here. I think I see the role for civic society when it comes to the Gulf in a very significant way. But I think uh, somehow here, civic society brought the hope and brought many of these efforts to the table. Uh, the Palestinian leadership in that sense had been very effective uh, to give them the credit. So in resenting this uh, and basically silencing the, the pro-peace uh, voices. Well, that's sad to hear. It's not, it's not the first time that I've heard an explanation uh, that alluded to the BDS playing some role uh, in um, actually uh, fueling resistance to peace between the two sides. I wonder though, Mir, if the Abraham Accords to a large degree, given the commitments coming through from uh, Bahrain, from the UAE uh, for peace building, uh, I wonder if they would play a more pro-peace role in the region. Uh, and I wonder if this not weakens the BDS movement to some degree. Look, I believe so. Um, I, I also had a sense that broadly in the world, despite of the uh, affinity in, in, in some circle, in some liberal circles in particular, to the BDS movement, because it is the movement of the oppressed that protects the Palestinians, uh, I think there's some people who are beginning to ask questions about why is it that we need to have a, a, a vision uh, that is of non-engagement? And how can you create peace if you're not engaging? I mean, usually uh, in, in, in relationship, uh, if somebody wants to have a divorce, and really this is a divorce case we're speaking about. Mm -hmm. um, we have two people in one land, they need to divide the property and, and make sure that uh, they are able to live you know, safely and, and, and deal with common interests. Uh, you know, there are many kids here in that sense, if you're using this analogy. Um, if you, of course, you can do it in a number of ways. You can have a more amicable divorce and people can remain some, you know, somewhat friends and live happily ever after and, and deal with the, their common interests. You can have a, a nasty divorce and you can also bring a, another, a number of other lawyers involved and you can say that you, know, you don't want to engage with each other uh, and then what you need to do is create many arguments and bring uh, you know, many other players into the game just to show that you're not able to speak on it to, you know, to each other. Usually in that case, that's why lawyers make good money and, and that's why divorce lawyers uh, exist. Uh, it usually doesn't help uh, the uh, divorce settlement, but it certainly helps the lawyers involved. So if the uh, objective is to get lawyers richer and to get uh, more people involved in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, then okay, that's the, the tragedy that was adopted. But I think after uh, another decade, where the Middle East was so busy with so many other things, where people have began to realize that with all the respect to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, it's not moving anywhere, it's kind of boring. The Middle East uh, is suffering from so many other issues and problems. 
people began to lose, to lose patience. And I think that uh, some people also, uh, even on college campuses, begin to see that with all the respect to, uh, uh, to the position or to the uh, BDS movement, uh, it's not really a peaceful movement. It's, uh, it's an anti-normalization movement. It's the opposite of uh, a, a peace movement. And it's not helping. It's not helping the Palestinians. If you want to help the Palestinians, you need to figure out a way how we can move forward. And you cannot move forward by saying we're not willing to negotiate with the other side, we're not willing to recognize the other side, and we don't really care who else is doing Exactly. Is I mean, that just, it's just non-logical to go down that road. I mean, engagement, peaceful dialogue, look at South Africa as a role model in terms of what we've achieved. Uh, it may not be the, uh, the mirror of the solution that you want, which is a two-state negotiated two-state solution. But in terms of the engagement, in terms of the peaceful transition, and I think you would want a peaceful transition, uh, for the neighbors, uh, it requires dialogue. It requires engagement. I mean, we people at the end of the day, we need to talk to each other. That is the best way, communication, to build bridges. So that makes perfect sense. Nira, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for joining me. And I uh, look forward to uh, future engagements. And I wish you a uh, prosperous uh, or festive year end. The year is coming to an end. It's been a very intense year for everyone. At least the Abraham Accords uh, brought in some, some hope for people that do support peace in the region. Thank you very much, Neil. You're more than welcome. Cheers. Bye -bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.
Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to my show, Give Peace a Chance. It's wonderful to be with you again after taking a short break. So I'm very determined.